0: The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. We're now in the third week of Advent, and as you may know, the first two weeks um, our themes have covered joy and peace. And I don't know about you, but in this season of Advent, has probably been the most meaningful one for me. Um, I think with all that is going on in this world, it just seems like it's a little bit easier to just to get into this mindset of anticipating our coming Savior um, and all that Christmas you know, represents. And it seems like these days, we can all use a little more joy. We could all use a little more peace and hope. We could all use a little more love, right? Well, today I'm going to speak on hope. And I want to first say thank you to, to Jen Choi for sharing that very powerful testimony. And as she mentioned, you know, they are relatively new to our church. And they joined uh, the community group I'm a part of a few months ago where she basically shared the same story. And I, I said, you have to share this with the church. It is such a great message of hope. And uh, so I'm grateful that she agreed. So thank you, Jen, for just being for a witness for Christ. And thank you for serving our church in this way. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. You know, I think Bonhoeffer says it so well here. You cannot celebrate Advent without looking forward to something, without looking for something greater to come. And I believe this is actually a very good definition of hope the expectation. They're looking forward to something greater, something better in our future. But, you know, let's be honest, it's, it's been a hard year to hope, right? 2020 has been the destroyer of hope. And, you know, as Pastor Steve mentioned in his Advent message on joy a couple weeks ago, it's, it just feels relentless, one thing after another this year. And, you know, in, in 2020, it seems like it's almost better not to hope, doesn't it? You know, that way we can avoid the heartbreak of, of unmet expectations and we can prepare ourselves for the worst. But how do we hold on to hope in what seems like a hopeless world? And in a year filled with disappointments and disruptions and death, how do we hold on to hope when we cannot make sense of all the brokenness that is around us? You know, if you've been at our church for some time, you may hear, to us, hear us refer to this word a lot, this word brokenness. And how we often define it here is that brokenness is not just something that is inside of us, but it's something that is all around us. And so when we use that term, we're not talking about just our own sinfulness, but how the sinful choices of those around us and the sinful effects of living in a fallen world, whether it's wildfires or cancer or hurricanes or pandemics, all of it leads to the fracturing of our mind, body, and soul. It leads to our brokenness. You know, I recently watched this movie called Magnolia that captures the brokenness of this world, probably as well as any film I've ever seen. It's an older film, it was actually released in 1999, and it follows the lives of about 10 different people. Some are children, some are adults, and besides the fact that they all reside in LA, they are all, each of these people are dealing with some very profound brokenness in their lives, in their own distinct ways. And for some, it's self-inflicted due to their own greed, their lust, or their selfishness. For others, it's their brokenness stems directly from the abuse they endured as children from their parents. And all of this is combined with what seems to be the random effects of living in a broken world. And I want to give this caveat because, you know, because this movie deals with the brokenness of our human nature in so many different ways. It is a very heavy movie. It's got a lot of vulgar language along with several graphic scenes. So it truly is an R movie. And I don't recommend actually watching this film without at least giving you the warning about this. And also, it's 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 over three hours long. So it's a big time investment. But in the story, in in Magnolia, each of these characters are trying to find hope. They're trying to find hope out of their brokenness in their own incomplete ways. And this only compounds and adds to their brokenness. Whether it's attempting to restore a broken relationship on their deathbed, or pushing the children, their children, to abusive levels to achieve excellence, or foolishly seeking love from random people they hardly know, or turning to drugs or even suicide to anesthetize their pain. You know, there's, Those are not necessarily unique things. But here's what got most people about this film. The movie opens with a narrator recounting several incredible stories of coincidences that leads you to believe that even the most random and upsetting things that happen in life seem to be orchestrated by a higher force. So as you're watching this movie unfold, you're following these stories of these many different people, and you're thinking somehow all of these different stories, they're going to come together. And it's going to show us that it all kind of wraps up into one big story. It's all going to make sense. And Spoiler alert for you here. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't come together. And not only that, the movie finishes with one of the craziest endings in cinematic history with literally thousands of frogs falling down from the sky. And, you know, I'm sorry if I spoiled it for you, but this movie, it did did come out in the 1900s, so you've had ample time to watch it. But, you know, again, the ending of this movie, it divided fans and divided critics alike, like few films ever have. And if you go on YouTube, you can find Roger Ebert, you know, the famous Chicago uh, film critic. He does a review of this film with uh, Joyce Kolaouik. And it's a very fascinating exchange because the two of them could not have had two more opposite opinions of the film. Ebert loved the film. Kolaouik hated it because although it had a great cast and powerful themes, she said the ending, quote, made no sense. And Ebert, when he hears this, he's borderline offended. And he he says to her, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the movie. He says the movie is like life. It's not supposed to make sense. And the director brilliantly leads us to believe that it would in the beginning and then ends this movie in this completely random way to disrupt our notions. That every movie, like life, has to end in a formulaic and predictable, wrap it up in a bow tie kind of way. And I share this because while the movie captures the brokenness of this world so well, I think the disagreement between these two movie critics actually captures the essence of hope so well. On one hand, like Ebert says, life can feel so pointless, so random, and it's impossible to make sense of it. And I couldn't help but think, as Ebert was sharing this, how maybe some of his strong sentiments about this movie were shaped by the unexpected loss of his famous colleague and friend, Gene Siskel, who only a few months earlier, in 1999, died fairly suddenly of cancer. However, I also think we can relate to Joyce Kolovic's frustration as well. Even though I think she missed the point of the movie, she touches on an innate longing that all of us share. We so desperately want to see the messiness of life come together somehow. We want to believe that whoever is in charge of all this has a plan and a purpose behind all of it, and he's going to help us make sense of it all. We want resolution. We want redemption. We want it in a two-hour package, three hours at the most, so we can feel good at the end. And we want this in our entertainment because rarely do we experience this in real life. Instead, our hopes are often frustrated in our inability to make sense of this broken world we live in. But here's the thing. God rarely ever instills hope in his people by helping them make sense of their broken situation or by promising an immediate change in their circumstances. But this is exactly how we experience life, isn't it? As Roger D. says, but God did not leave everything to mystery. Through the Old Testament prophets... God implored his people to place their hope in a coming king, a Messiah who will restore us and renew this broken world under his righteous rule, which I believe speaks to the resolution that Joyce Kolaouk was longing for. And here's the problem. Even though all of us deep in our souls are universally longing for resolution, for redemption, for renewal, As Paul says in Romans 8, not just hoping for it, but groaning for it in our spirits. Still often, we try to find hope in lesser and incomplete ways, just as each character does in Magnolia. Before we can reorient our hope around what God is calling us to place our hope in, I think it's important to identify where we have misplaced our hopes. And so I want to explore today three places where we, I think we can expose often some of our misplaced hopes. And within each of them, speak to the ways in which God invites us to place our hope in him through the giving of his son. And to make it easy for you to remember, each of these three areas begins with the letter P. Okay, are you ready? Our true hopes are evident in our prayers, in our politics, and in our progeny. Okay, the last one, progeny, is just a fancy way of saying children. But I spent a lot of time trying to come up with with that one. So uh, please remember this list, okay? Our prayers, our politics, and our progeny. So how do we identify where our hopes really lie? I think the first place to look is in our prayers. What do we pray for? I think this is one of the easiest places to discover where our hopes lie. You know, our prayers, they reveal our deepest longings. I think if we're honest, most of the time when we pray, though, we're, we're hoping for specific outcomes, aren't we? We're asking for a change in circumstances if things are bad, aren't we? And that's what often prompts us to pray. You know, we pray that this person will recover quickly from COVID. Oh, Lord, Please. We pray that God will give me or this, our friend this job that they're seeking or we're seeking. We pray that doctors will be able to treat this cancer we just recently got word of, diagnosed of. We pray that our child will do well in school or will get into this school. We pray for our circumstances. We pray for outcomes. Please, God, do this. Give us that. And, you know, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with praying in this way. But I am saying if this is almost all that we pray for, if this characterizes really our prayers, then our hopes are too small. Far smaller than our God. You know, I'll sometimes ask my children when I hear them rush through a prayer at the table, dinner table, if, if God answered all of your prayers... Would it change anyone's life but your own? And this question applies to me, too. You know, we can often resort to shallow, very shallow, short-sighted prayers, which exposes our lesser, incomplete hopes. But when you examine the content of the apostles' prayers in the New Testament, there seems to be a qualitative difference from the way we often pray, at least here in America, and their prayers. Their prayers were not petitions for God often. They weren't asking for desired outcomes so much as they were made up of just asking God to reveal himself, to reveal himself more fully to his people and to make them more like Christ. Notice the Apostles Paul's prayer in the opening of Colossians. This is his great hope for them. He says this, and so from the day we heard we have not ceased pray- to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you hear that? All Paul hopes for them is that they would grow in both the knowledge and in the character of God and I think this prayer captures so well what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount to seek first his kingdom to seek first his righteousness and this prayer seeks that for others, this prayer hopes for that these two things, you know, God's kingdom and God's righteousness are paired together because they go hand in hand when we come to faith, we are justified and yes, at that moment we are made righteous in God's sight But as we grow in Christ, we are called to work out or outwardly the righteousness that God has already worked in. And I don't think we can fully express the righteousness of Christ in our lives until we have first fully surrendered ourselves to his kingdom and to his rule in our life. And this is why we are to seek both God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And when I submit myself to his rule and to his reign by setting aside my will and my plans and surrendering to his will and his purpose for my life, not just in big decisions like my vocation or my life calling, but even in the smallest ones, even in the daily decisions of life, the way I demonstrate love to others by choosing kindness, by giving generously, By showing patience to my spouse and to my children. By forgiving those who hurt me, I'm yielding, I'm surrendering to his rule and reign. And I am bringing the kingdom down to earth. You know, in these small acts of faith, I'm showing the world that I've been set free from the bondage of sin, and I have surrendered to Christ as my king. And I'm showing the world what Paul says later in that same prayer in verse 14, Colossians 1, he says, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. As we learned a few weeks ago in this Bible Project series, the gospel is not just good news. It it is a royal proclamation of the arrival of Christ. It is announcing that the king is here. And the kingdom, his kingdom has come. And this is why Jesus instructs his disciples to pray in this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I live out the values of this upside down kingdom, I am actually bringing his power. I am bringing his presence into my home, into my office, into my church, into my community. And this is what we are to hope for. This is what we are to seek. What do your prayers reveal about the nature of your hope? Are your hopes too small? Our prayers reveal our hopes for ourselves and for this world, for others. But what about our politics? The second P. What do our politics reveal about our hopes? I think our politics capture our hopes not just for ourselves, but our our great hopes for the world that we live in. You know, this has been one of the most divisive political years, um, four years maybe, in the history of our country, maybe the most divisive since the Civil War. And, you know, I've come to realize over the years that there are very few things that can trigger an, an emotional response in someone like talking politics can, even more than sports and sports rivalries. And I think it has this effect on us because it's not just about your pick or your party winning or losing. Politics represents your ideals, your ideals for this world, your hopes in making it a better place. It represents your deeply held beliefs about justice, about what is fair and right, not just for you, but for everyone. And, you know, when I disagree with other people on their political views, I find it easier to be gracious when I remind myself that really at the root of it all, we want the same thing. We all want the same thing. We can all agree that this world is very broken, and it's a messed up place, and it needs serious help. And politics represents our best attempts to right things that were wrong in this world. And we may fundamentally disagree on how to get there, what policy should be in place, or who should be the ones to lead. But most people can at least agree on that, that this world is not as it should be. And there are a few things that are more frustrating than being under leadership or an authority that you feel is incompetent or unjust or hopelessly corrupt. And I feel this frustration often living in this great state of Illinois. So much incompetence, injustice, corruption. But if you have placed so much hope in your choice of your politician or your president, this, especially this last election cycle, if either of these faces here dramatically raises your level of anger or anxiety, or if it renders you unable to love another person because they don't share your views, then perhaps this is a sign that you've placed your ultimate hope in something that was never meant to be an ultimate thing. You know, I'm not saying that Christians should not take an interest in politics or that we should not seek to place good leaders in office or even run for office. We should lead the charge in fighting for justice and for kingdom values. We should seek for the flourishing of our cities and our nation. But we should not place so much hope and faith in politics or politicians that it robs us of experiencing God's shalom. Or it makes us incapable of sharing God's shalom with others, just living in peace with other people. Who is the one that we should place our hope in? Whose arrival should we anticipate in the midst of failed leadership? The prophet Isaiah tells us. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what, he, by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I don't know about you, but man, I'm looking forward to the day that all of us are under this kind of ruler. One who's compassionate, kind, one who seeks the welfare of others before himself, one who is incorruptible and just and does not show favorites and brings justice to oppressors and evildoers. You see, if the life of Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest human leader that this world has ever known, if his life teaches us anything, it is that even the wisest man in all of history is incapable of solving a nation's problems. Because our greatest problem is not racism or classism or poverty or education or climate change. Our greatest problem is sin. And all of those other problems, they're just manifestations and the effects of sin. And we need one wiser than Solomon because he will not only rule justly, but he will save us from our sin. And he will liberate all of creation from the effects and the curse of sin. We are only setting ourselves up for disappointment if we place our hopes in anyone or in anything apart from Christ. You know, at the end of Romans, Paul quotes from this same Isaiah passage, and he refers to the child who would come from the royal line of David. And he says this, and again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. You know, we are told that he is the hope of all nations. Because he will bear this burden to lead, which no one has ever been able to fill. Isaiah 9 6 says this For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What a strange way to describe the role of the Messiah, isn't it? The the government will be on his shoulders. This is just a Hebrew way of saying that this child will rise up and he will accept the burden. He will accept the responsibility of ruling a kingdom that will flourish so fully that it will last forever. Luke highlights the fulfillment of that messianic promise when the birth of Jesus is announced to Mary through an angel. The angel says to her, he, that is Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Most people don't think of the Bible as a very political book. And yet when you think about it, politics are really everywhere. Can't escape it. Because the brokenness that politics creates... Perpetuates. It comes from evil and corrupt leaders. And all throughout, especially the Old Testament, one after the other, king after king, who fails Israel over and over again from within. And also outside, the the oppressing, dominating, surrounding foreign powers, Egyptians and the Philistines, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, one after the other, throughout their long history. And this is why, all throughout the Old Testament, They're always crying out for justice. They're always crying out for peace. I think I've mentioned this before, um, but during the initial COVID lockdown, I was watching this TV series called The Chosen. It was released last year. It it is an amazing show. And it looks at, at the life and the ministry of Jesus through the lens of some of his closest followers. And the writers, they do take some artistic license in retelling the story, but you know, I think they do it in a very winsome and in a very compelling way. It makes the gospel really just come alive and visually. I highly recommend watching it, especially if you're stuck at home. We're all stuck at home, right? The first season is only eight episodes, and you can watch it for free on VidAngel. You can don't or you can download the Chosen app. But the very first show in this series explores some of the financial struggles that Peter and Andrew, as brothers and as fishermen are facing, which makes it very difficult for them to pay their taxes, the tax debt that they owe to Rome. And, you know, this isn't mentioned very uh, heavily in in the Gospels, but um, there's some light mention of it. And the show presents it in a way that actually makes the struggle very real and very relatable. One of the things that the series develops is this tension between Peter, who is this gruff and muscular blue-collar fisherman, And Matthew, who is this socially inept town pariah. Peter, along with almost everyone, despises Matthew. Because, you know, as a tax collector, he's cheating his own people for his own personal gain and to the benefit of their Roman oppressors. And this hatred is even more intense, I think, than, than, you know, a Trump and a Biden supporter going at it today. And seeing, seeing this interaction made me realize just how different these disciples were from one another. Even in terms of probably what were their likely political views. And I'm sure their political views were just as strong as we hold our political views today. You know, from what we know of the 12 disciples, they could not have been any more different. In addition to Peter and Matthew, we know there was another disciple named Simon the Zealot, who we, know, we don't know a lot about him, but just by his label, the Zealot, we know. He was like hell-bent on overthrowing the Roman establishment. He was zealous. We know Judas Iscariot, he would go on to betray Jesus. He probably had his own political motivations, which led to him mishandling the money, which led to his financial corruption, even in the betrayal. We have a respected and highly educated and articulate Greek physician in Luke who was successful by every human measure, who probably didn't wish for anything to change politically. He was, he was living the good life. And we have Nathaniel who had this obvious prejudice against Nazarenes, right? All these men, they had their own motivations for why they would follow Jesus at the start. And I can assure you that it was not all pure and it was not all altruistic. You know, later James and John's mother, as you know, she tries to convince Jesus to, you know, give her two sons the places of great positions of power and honor when he assumes rule. But no one had any idea until after his death and his resurrection that Jesus was not going to assume power the way that they had envisioned or that they had even hoped in a political manner, but in a very different upside-down way. Not through brute force, not through crowd-pleasing miracles, not through even his charisma, but through the cross and through his resurrection through the giving up of himself. His power would be expressed through humble service and self-giving love. And he would call his disciples to all do the same. And what happens afterwards is is mind-boggling. These disciples, who each came in with their own agenda, would eventually set aside their ethnic, their socioeconomic, their political differences, and they would pledge allegiance to Christ. And to one another. And this world has never been the same. They released their greatest hopes for themselves and for their world. Their political convictions and their political aspirations. And they surrendered it all to the will of the king. And for the work of the kingdom. I think this should be an example to all of us. Especially in these days. If your prayers and your politics have not already exposed where your true hope lies, let me finish with this last P. Let's examine our progeny, our children. From the moment you lay eyes on your newborn child, uh, you know, you have hopes, right? You have dreams for them. Our, Our children embody so much of our own hopes and fears as parents, don't they? We raise them with the hopes that they will enjoy the things that we enjoy and be endowed with our best attributes, right, and none of our worst ones. And we want them to love the things that we love. Even our beloved sports teams. You know, when my boys were really young, my greatest hope was that they would one day play professionally for my beloved St. Louis Cardinals. And it wasn't long before those dreams disappeared. Now I'm just happy that we can play softball together without me getting hurt. But my hopes and dreams have changed over time. You know, everything we couldn't have, we want to give to them. Everywhere we may have failed, we want to see them succeed. In so many ways, they represent not just our hopes, but what we hope for in life. And when we look at where we pour our time, our resources, our energy for them, I think it says something about where we have placed our greatest hope in this life. What is it that you want more for them than anything? Is it primarily excellence in their academics, for them to star in their athletics? Is it that they will thrive socially and have lots of friends? What does a normal week look like for you, before and after COVID, and and for them? And what have you encouraged in them as parents? Is their time and your money spent primarily on tutors for school and trainers for sports? Or do you find yourself getting really upset when they do poorly on an exam? or if they make a mistake in a game, or if they're too shy or awkward around other people? Or are you more concerned with the state of their soul, their emotional health and well-being, and their eternal future? Do you model for them the things that you say you value, love for God, time with him, love for others and his bride, the church, Do you demonstrate the importance of God's word in the way that you study it and learn it and obey it? What do the hopes you have for your children say about where you believe the good life is truly found? You know, the Christmas story is is often a romanticized one. We we picture, you know, a blue-eyed baby Jesus nestled in a soft bed of hay, and everyone, even the farm animals, are doting on him. But the truth is, it was nothing like that. You know, Jesus entered a world even more broken than ours. It was under the rule of a king so insecure that he would literally wipe out the entire population of boys ages 2 and under just to ensure that his power would not be threatened. Matthew 2, 16 says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, imagine if COVID was not only harmful to the oldest among us, but had a perfect record of wiping out 100% of all the toddlers and all the babies in this world. How would that change the way that you look at this pandemic? What kind of fear and hopelessness would that instill in you? It is into this broken world, this hopeless world that Jesus enters, God gives us his son, his one and only, his beloved son. And in giving us his son, God gives us everything he hopes for and he dreams for, and for us. And the irony is that by sending his, us his son, God has paved the way for us to become his children as well. What have your prayers, your politics, and your political views, and your your progeny, your children, revealed to you about where your true hopes lie? And how do we let go of these lesser hopes? And how can we trust God, that God's hope will not disappoint us? Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith. It's by faith into this grace into which we now stand. And we boast in the hope, in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know These verses, I think, reveal why Paul prays the way that he does as we saw in Colossians 1. Paul understood that the present sufferings that we are enduring, whether it be financial stress, failing health of loved ones, uncertain futures, difficulty with our children, whatever it may be. These sufferings, when seen through the eyes of faith, are given to us by God to produce many good things. Perseverance, character, Christlikeness, and ultimately hope. A true and unfailing hope, which comes from a true and unfailing God. And when you see by faith how the difficulties of life, even a global pandemic, displaces our hope in lesser things and directs us to God himself and his unshakable love for you, that is true hope. As Paul says, this is a hope that does not put us to shame meaning this is the one true hope that will never, ever fail you, never leave you disappointed. This is the only hope which can help you to rise above your darkest seasons and your greatest hardships. I want to close with one last story. <coughs> you know, back in July um, of this year, during you know all this COVID lockdown, I... I got a random friend request on Facebook from someone that I vaguely recognized and um, I realized it was an old acquaintance from college about well over 20 years ago. And you know, I accepted this friend request and after I did so, I immediately got a, a message on Facebook from this person. And um, he said he was reaching out to me at the suggestion of a couple mutual friends that we share Because he found out that he had just been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And um, the prognosis was not good. And he had heard, um, you know, that Kim and I had walked through cancer years ago. And he just, I think he just wanted to turn to someone to talk to that had, had walked through something that he was about to walk through. So I think within a day, Kim and I got on the phone with him and his wife, and it was pretty obvious that you know he was really anxious. Um, He's distraught and um, just feeling really hopeless. And that, that this diagnosis it just completely blindsided them. And you know they had two young children. Um, there's so much to be anxious about. And, yeah, you know, in our call, I shared with him some just practical things that helped us. But mostly, we talked about um, his faith. And I shared a bit of our story and our faith journey through cancer and how God had given us hope as we turned to him in our darkest moments and how we leaned so heavily on on our church, on a community of faith, and how we felt so profoundly in that season, so grateful for the love of Christ that we experienced Largely through the body of Christ, this community of faith around us. And we talked for about an hour or so, and, I, and then we, you know, we prayed with them. And then I hadn't, I didn't hear anything for a while, for a couple months. And, you know, to be honest, there wasn't a lot to be hopeful for circumstantially when we ended the call. But uh, I got off another Facebook message from him, you know, two months later. And he just wanted to tell me that the treatment was going really well. The cancer was reducing in size, and it looked like he was no longer in immediate danger. But what struck me more than you know this positive health update was when he shared about his faith, which I want to read just an excerpt from you, his message to me with his permission. He said this, I'm doing well from an emotional and spiritual standpoint. Even my wife jokes that I'm happier with cancer than without it. I have great appreciation for each day, and at times I'll find myself filled with incredible joy. My wife and I have started doing things that we neglected throughout our marriage, like a couple's Bible studies and opening and closing the day in prayer. And I'm, I'm aware that I may have different emotions and trials later on, but in so far, I'm grateful for the journey. Amen. And in Christ, there's always hope. Let us not lose hope when we cannot make sense of this broken world. Let us not settle for hoping in lesser things, which will only disappoint us. Let us place our hope in the King of Kings, who is using our present sufferings to draw us To himself, to mold us into his image, and who is ushering in his kingdom through those who have surrendered themselves fully to him. As we close our service, I want to invite you to gather the elements for communion that you may have in your home as we prepare to partake in it. You know, I think one of the most beautiful things about communion is that it teaches us that we're not only to look backwards in history at what Christ has done for us but we're also to look forward with great anticipation for what is to come and this is why when Jesus says he breaks the bread and he pours the wine he says this is my body this is my blood, broken and poured out for you. And he says we're to do this in remembrance of him. But he doesn't end there, does he? We're also to, this is also to help us to look forward. He says we are, in doing this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. just by this little simple exercise of communion. We are proclaiming some profound truths about the gospel. That we have been renewed and restored. That we have been given the righteousness of Christ because of his broken body and poured out blood. But that also we can look forward to the renewal and the restoration of all things.